this is a disease as a pandemic that will need millions and millions of doses. Platforms which can scale up will be much more promising. Hello and welcome back to another episode of LSHTM Viral. I'm Amy Thomas from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. In this episode, we speak to Professor Beata Kampman, who is the director of the Vaccine Centre. As one of three theme leaders at the MRC unit in The Gambia, she oversees all research activities in infant immunology, child TB and molecular diagnostics. In this episode, we asked Bieta about the latest progress in finding a vaccine for COVID-19 and discuss the challenges of producing a medicine on such an enormous scale. The first thing is to remember what we're actually trying to achieve. We're trying to achieve a vaccine that prevents us from getting the COVID-19 infection without causing major side effects, right? If we want to go that journey, then we need to really think about the steps that are necessary to uh, get to the point where we know it's not going to have major side effects, it's also going to work. So this is the format of where the clinical trials come in. And although there's now over 100 candidates of potentially interesting markers in laboratories across the world, only a few have really gone into what we call human trials, human clinical trials. And these are all at the moment in phase one, apart from one that has started phase two. So in a phase one study, you really want to establish whether the product that you've developed is essentially safe for healthy people. And, you know, you're rolling like between 10 and 100 people or so who are fit and healthy, usually, you know, between the age of 18 and 50 around that. And they have extensive blood tests before, make sure they don't have any high risk factors, etc. And really what you want to see with that is that the vaccine is not giving any um, you know, obvious side effects, be they either local, which could mean, you know, a very big swelling on the arm that takes for ages to get to go away, or systemic, which means days of fever and lying in bed feeling unwell. Because you can have the greatest vaccine in the world if it's so intolerable, nobody will want to use it. So then the second phase is uh, where you are starting to look whether the vaccine will induce the kind of immune response that we think is needed in this case to fend off COVID. And this is where the sort of immunogenicity assays come in. Lots and lots of blood tests will be done on a similar type of volunteers to understand what immunity is induced by the vaccine and try and confirm that the expectation that you have from the vaccine in terms of what immunity is supposed to be induced is actually being matched by the profile uh, of immunity that the vaccine is inducing because you can have a safe vaccine, but if it doesn't do anything to the immune system, then it's also not worth having. Then you might as well have a glass of water. So both of these things have to really work in tandem. And safety is something that gets assessed through all stages of the trial. And then the biggest trials, you know, phase 2B, phase 3, are really geared towards looking for rarer side effects, but mainly for efficacy. So um, there the deal is that you want to make sure that the population or the people who get the vaccine are actually protected from the disease. And there you need to conduct uh, large-scale clinical trials in places where there's still a lot of exposure to the disease so that you can clearly distinguish that the people who got the vaccine are protected and the ones who didn't get the vaccine are not protected. And that's then the proof of the pudding. And then you can proceed to licensure and rolling the vaccine out in larger vaccine manufacturing facilities as well. So that's, in a nutshell, the, the range of things that have to happen. And, uh, you know, with the COVID situation right now, 
some of these phases are a little bit compressed for the Oxford vaccine, a phase one, phase two combination, because they're enrolling over a thousand people of whom half of them would be given the COVID vaccine. If there's already a lot of pressure from the exposure to COVID, they might be able to glimpse some initial efficacy data as well. But that's not usually what happens in phase one and phase two. How far are we away from a COVID-19 vaccine? I know you just mentioned the Oxford trials there, but are there other trials going on and where are we with those? It's becoming really quite a a large field and in the Vaccine Centre we've designed a uh, vaccine pipeline tracker which can be found on our website which actually maps which vaccines are in which phase of the trials and also what technological platforms they've been derived from. So there are, you know, these new plug and play technologies, RNA, DNA, then there are the vectored vaccines, non-replicating and replicating, and the Oxford vaccine is one of the non-replicating vector vaccines. There are subunit vaccines, which are the sort of more standard way of making vaccines. There is a whole plethora of candidates. There's over 110 last time I looked and we update this on a weekly basis. So, but they're all in preclinical. And um, so the Oxford vaccine is the first trial in Europe, but there's already been a phase one initiated in the US and in China. And uh, they are already going to phase two in China. So we are, you know, ahead of the curve as far as Europe is concerned, but not quite ahead of the curve as far as the global uh, setting is concerned, except that the candidates that are being tested are quite different. And just moving on to talking about the candidates, you mentioned a few different types of vaccines that we're looking at across the trials. What are the most promising candidates that we're seeing so far? So um, it's very hard to say what is really the, the, what defines promising, right? So obviously vaccines that are scalable are going to be really important because we're not just looking at a disease that needs a few thousand doses or so. This is a disease as a pandemic that will need millions and millions of doses, possibly on a sort of regular manufacturing cycle, which means that platforms which can scale up will be much more promising than platforms that are difficult to scale up. And uh, the plug and play technologies with the RNA vaccines, for example, are quite scalable. And the uh, vectored vaccines are also uh, quite scalable. So there are already some obvious candidates or more obvious than others. You wouldn't want to you know, scale up a vaccine big time that needs refrigeration of minus 80 or something, because that would just not be sustainable for also the global use. So, you know, several discussions will have to come in to really see what makes a product promising. And this isn't a discussion that's going to happen in isolation. There's a whole framework of WHO committees and and people really trying to think through from the moment there's a promising candidate to the conduct of the trials up to the point where a vaccine might enter the market or will be used in specific risk groups as well. Because you might find a vaccine that works very well in young people of a particular platform. It might not work so well in the elderly, whilst another platform might deliver immune responses that are also really supportive for vaccinating the elderly. So it's very difficult to just put one sentence saying this is the leading candidate and I wouldn't want to do that. And just touching back on the point of how we would roll this vaccination out, you have worked for quite a long time in West Africa at the MRC units in the Gambia. How can countries in Africa 
maintain their standard immunisation programmes in addition to a potentially new, quite intensive COVID-19 vaccination programme? This is a really important question and one that's really close to my heart at the moment because our research on various vaccines that we're conducting at the moment in collaboration with the uh, government of the Gambia and, and the EPI programme um, have always you know, also looked at what other vaccines are important in the country and that's the way the vaccine trials are usually designed and you know COVID isn't there isn't yet a vaccine there are very few cases in the Gambia for example at the moment but it is very likely that a preventive vaccine will also be needed in Africa given all the information we have about the pandemic potential of this virus and if it wasn't to happen we would really learn quite some astonishing facts about the coronaviruses in, in different geographical areas. But going back to your question about how it might affect other vaccine services. So, you know, the, the healthcare systems in most countries in Africa, um, the EPI system is probably one of the stronger pillars of support in these settings. Nevertheless, the resources and in particular, the human resources are very limited. And when you know that there will only be so many people managing a pandemic or a large epidemic in, well, weak healthcare system, you know that those people who are running vaccination programs in routine are going to be pulled into managing that epidemic. We've seen it with Ebola, you know, more people died of measles in the Congo than they've died of Ebola, for example, in the latest outbreak. And my concern is, for example, WHO has already um, called off various measles vaccine campaigns or not necessarily called off, but uh, told countries to prioritize because of the social distancing, etc. And I'm really concerned that routine vaccination clinics will be downscaled or that people will be very worried about coming to these clinics because they're often you know, very full on and lots of people there, etc. So social distancing in these circumstances is very difficult and that clinics will just get cancelled. And that might leave a whole generation of birth cohort of children exposed to potentially vaccine preventable infections. And we need to come up with some thoughts about how we can bring the vaccines to the populations without necessarily running the risk that people might feel they don't want to go to a health center because it could be exposing them to COVID. And this is not just a phenomenon I've seen in Africa. This is something that's happening in West London where I live at the very moment. People are reluctant to go to their GP surgeries, to the immunization clinics, and we will see some fallout from that. And how do we figure out that balance? How can we help? I think to, you know, to keep things in perspective is really important and that we also think about creative ways of administering the vaccines or having, for example, in the campaign setting, often um, the people, the vaccinators go to the houses and they vaccinate people there, um, which avoids people gathering in large crowds. So that's something which is hard to do if you don't have enough manpower, but you know, something to think about or in a resource rich settings, for example, or better resourced, even in, in low resource settings, you might have people who could come and, you know, get their kids vaccinated in the car, for example, you know, there's been a, an initiative like that in Leicester, um, I saw on Twitter the other day, and I thought that was really imaginative. And how can we bring the vaccines to people also through other 
uh, vaccinators. For example, the newborn vaccines um, should be given on the day of birth of a baby. And, you know, there's one certainty, pregnancy is not going to stop and babies will still have to come out roughly after nine months of pregnancy. And they will hopefully continue to be born in health centers and to give the vaccines, get the midwives, for example, to give these vaccines rather than waiting for the next EPI clinic would already be a big step in the right direction. And then clinics where young children may be weighed or so could be used as vaccine clinics as well. You know, one needs to think a little bit about the logistics, about the, the cold chain, of course, and the quality control and also the recording, because we might have to have some catch-up campaigns for um, children who missed out on vaccinations. And unless it's recorded, it will be very difficult to track. So that's a really interesting point about keeping creative to maintain this balance at this time. What do you really want the public to understand about this work and about a COVID-19 vaccine? We need to be a little bit patient. I know everybody wants an immediate answer to everything, but we have to also acknowledge that we've known about this particular virus for the last four months, and there is still a dearth of information about what happens to people. For example, what's the difference in the people who have asymptomatic disease compared to the ones that end up in hospital? and maybe end up on a ventilator. So what are those predictive markers? And that takes a little while to figure out, even in in the sophisticated laboratories and research that we are running. In order to do that, we really need samples that are collected on more than one time point. For example, not just one swab, but seeing how the virus evolves in these swabs over a time course, how immune responses might evolve. So I'm, you know, you can tell I'm coming from the immunological background there, but to have some longitudinal cohort studies is going to be really important to understand what the disease does, because if we want to figure out the best therapeutics, we need to understand the immunology. And if we want to make vaccines that really induce long lasting protective efficacy, we also need to understand the immunology. And I think we need to pay a little bit more attention to the laboratory studies that are hopefully going to give us uh, these answers. And the other thing is that we need to conduct well-organized, well-powered clinical trials in order to get the data with a level of trust that will move the field forward. And how do we make sure a vaccine is going to be effective globally, not just in one region or another? If vaccine trials are conducted, they probably need to be conducted in a range of geographical areas and also in a range of age groups to make sure that the products that we're designing are actually fit for purpose in different places and that we need to work with the populations in the various geographic regions to um, accept that it might be useful to have studies being done in their population and with their collaboration. And how do we you know, ensure that countries have access to the same science and the same resources for a vaccine? Exactly. And and actually, ultimately, to the same vaccine and to the same therapeutics and, you know, equity in, in the distribution of the knowledge and the goods is absolutely vital for coming to, to get on top of the, the pandemic as well, because, I mean, we don't have the facilities with ventilators and, you know, intensive care in low and income countries as much as we have them in, in our settings. And we need to devise protocols that are fit for purpose. And we can really do that best if we relate with partners on the ground to give us information that we can then adapt protocols and interventions so that they fit the populations that they are to serve. And we can learn a lot from, from the other countries and you know what, what they've in, implemented and what trials they've done and what public health measures they have taken. And, and I think we're well advised to, 
to look at the similarities and try to understand the differences, of course, because different countries have taken different roads. A degree of international collaboration on this is absolutely vital. And I think to some degree that is happening. And for the vaccine field, for sure, this is an unprecedented moment where you know, funders, academia, industry, regulatory authorities have come together at a very early stage to look at what would be target product profiles and, and how eventually uh, vaccines would be scalable. And that's really been very good to see. And the London School is playing an important part in that, of course. A massive thank you to Beata for joining us on the podcast and for walking us through those essential issues in developing a vaccine. And if you are interested in the anthropological and social aspects of rolling out a vaccine and how that relates to COVID, you can find our discussion with Professor Heidi Larson on LSHTM Viral episode 11. So do go there and check it out. Please also subscribe if you haven't subscribed already. You can find us on most podcast platforms. And if you could write us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be fantastic. We also have our first ever digital short course running in June, providing an introduction to infectious disease modelling and its applications. So if that's something that you're interested in, please do head to our website and find out more information. We also have our hugely popular professional diploma in tropical nursing being delivered online starting in October. Thank you so much for listening.